I invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. My goal this morning is to preach a message to you that will encourage your heart. And I know no better way to encourage the people of God than to remind them of what our God has done for them in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. One brother remarked that good preaching is not finding new ways to say new truths, but it is simply faithfully proclaiming the truths that we so often and easily forget. I don't believe I'm going to say anything this morning that will be new to any of you. As a matter of fact, I'm going to preach from a text that I've preached from before, even in this pulpit, uh, but I believe it was about a year and a half ago, and uh, uh, maybe with the exception of one or two, none of you are here. And it's a text that I believe we should return to in our minds and in our devotions and in our thoughts frequently. It's one of those texts that sits itself in the mountain range of Holy Scripture. And Scripture is indeed like a mountain range. And uh, no matter where you're at in that mountain range, the, the view is going to be beautiful. The view is going to be glorious. And you're going to see wonderful things from the Word of God. But there are certain peaks in that mountain range. There are certain heights that we get to climb to, that we get to ascend to as we're reading the Word and as we're preaching the Word. And this verse is one of those such peaks. You probably already know the verse that I'm about to read to you. It is 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. Let me read it to you. These are the words of God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It was Charles Spurgeon who said of this verse that when you begin to preach from 2 Corinthians 5.21, it would do you well to begin with an apology. We could preach from this text for decades upon decades and sermon upon sermon, and we would but scratch the truth of what is contained here in verse 21. It was John Calvin who said of this verse that we ought not say too much about this verse, Because this verse opens up to us the Trinitarian nature of our salvation and the relationship of the persons of the Godhead as they work out the salvation of sinners. And if we say too much, we could easily venture into heresy. But Calvin also warned, don't say too little, lest you rob God's people of the beauties of this truth. Nowhere else in the entire Bible is the truth of the cross more succinctly, plainly, and powerfully stated. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is the whole gospel in one verse. This verse is Paul's John 3.16. This verse highlights the dual transaction that took place on the cross of Calvary as the spotless Son of God became the substitute for wretched sinners. This transaction involved the worst about us being given to Him and the best about Him being given to us. There was a removal of a negative from us and there was the addition of a positive from Him. 
This verse answers the question of how God can be both the just and the justifier of his people. The truth of this verse is really the hinge upon which salvation swings. If verse 21 describes a work that God has done in your life and on your behalf, then you can be assured that you are saved and secured in His presence. But if you are not a contracting party in this transaction, then you have no hope of having a relationship with God. You are lost and you still bear the full weight of your sin debt here this morning. In other words, this is serious business. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the difference between heaven and hell. This is the difference between going to your house justified or remaining dead in trespasses and sins. And I want to exhort you, as I've already prayed, that the gospel is not just a message that lost people need in order to get saved. But it is a message that God's people need to continually feast their souls upon. You will never outgrow your need for the gospel. Those who profess to be Christians but then speak of the gospel as uh, some initiatory message or you, you, you preach to them and you say, do we not experience this as we do our own evangelism? And you say, do you know the Lord? Are you a Christian? And you get some answer that goes like this. Oh yes, I've done that. And what they mean is, yeah, I, I prayed that prayer, or I walked that aisle, or yeah, I was baptized. It doesn't matter that for the last 20 years I've been living like hell, but I'm trusting in some decision I made 20 years ago. Well, brothers and sisters, the gospel is not something you do. The gospel is a proclamation of the grace of God extended to you in Jesus Christ. And whether you've been in the faith for 30 minutes or 30 years, you have a continual need from this grace. And this grace only comes to you in the gospel. Amen. So we, as God's people, need the gospel. We need the gospel. Very simple outline that I want to give you. I want to show you three things from verse 21. The first is this. I want you to see the initiative of the Father. The initiative of the Father. You must understand that redemption is a Trinitarian work. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit each have a role, each have an indispensable function as they execute and perform and accomplish the redemption of sinners. And we find this very clearly in verse 21. We see the initiative of the Father. Our verse begins, For He hath made. And this He refers to none other than God the Father. It has been often said, and I agree, that the Father is in many ways the forgotten member of the Trinity. There is much emphasis upon the Son, as well there should be, for the Son is Jehovah God, and He, he is the one whom the other two members of the Trinity seek to emphasize. There's also a great deal of emphasis in our day upon the Holy Spirit, some of that for the better and much of that for the worse, I'm afraid. But we rarely hear much spoken about God the Father. He's often forgotten in our minds. Many of us would struggle to really understand what His role is in our redemption. It is the Father. It is the Father who takes upon Himself 
the procession of paternity. That is why the Father is the Father. You ask the, the question in your Trinitarian theology, why is the Father the Father? Or why is the Son the Son? Why is the Spirit the Spirit? The Father is the Father because that is the relationship that He has taken upon Himself in the Godhead. He assumes the relation of paternity. It is the Son who assumes the relation of filiation. He is eternally the Son, begotten, not created. He, he did not become the Son in His incarnation, but He was forever and always the Son. And then the Holy Spirit takes upon Himself the relationship of spiration. He proceeds from the Father and from the Son. Yet He is not an impersonal force. No, He is a person. We refer to the Spirit as He, as well we should. And what we find in verse 21 is that when it comes to redemption, the Father is our saving initiator. He is the originator of redemption. We could never save ourselves. We could never devise a pathway to God. Uh, We could never uh, take that first step and, and then let Him come and do the rest, as it were. Jonathan Edwards rightly said, You contribute nothing to your salvation except for the sin that made it necessary. Because we could never go to God. In His grace, He came to us. He came to us. You must understand that when we talk about the plan of salvation, we're talking about God's plan. There are many in our day who will refer to something and they'll call it the plan of salvation. And then when you say, well, what, what is that plan all about? What, what are the parts of that plan? They will then give you a bunch of things that sinners must do. Admit, believe, confess, repent, walk you down the Romans road. And Indeed, we should do those things and we must do those things. But you must understand that there has never ever been a sinner who repented of his sins and accepted and received the Lord Jesus Christ without God the Father having initiated that sinner's salvation. Christ himself says this in John 6 when he says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, but no man can come to me unless the Father which hath sent me draws him. In the salvation of sinners, it is ultimately the God, the Father, who acts. He made. The, the, the verb to make, it's one of the most basic verbs in, in really Greek and in the English language. It simply is a, it's an action word that, that speaks of ultimate action. Before you can do anything else, you first have to make. And in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is the Father who made all of the parameters, who made all of the provision, and who made, as we will see, His own Son to be sin for us. He depends upon no one to make. There is no force outside of Him that compels Him to make. He does not need permission from anyone to make. He is not relying on the materials or the power of anyone else to make. No, but he has the power and the prerogative within himself to make. In the plan of salvation, we are entirely passive. Even the Son on the cross, as he was accomplishing redemption, was passive. It was the Father who was active in pouring out his wrath upon the Son. And it must be God who takes the initiative because only God the Father 
can accomplish this work. Only the Father could lift our sins off of us and place them on another. Only God the Father could take the righteousness of Christ and accredit it to our account. All of these factors of our redemption came to pass in accordance with His perfect plan. It is the Father's will that led the Son to Calvary. Jesus did not go to the cross because the Jews rejected Him, though they did. Jesus did not go to the cross because the Romans arrested Him, though they did. Jesus did not go to the cross because Judas betrayed Him, though He did. Jesus went to the cross for the same reason that He did everything. He tells us, I came to do the will of Him that sent me. Can I say this to you? with the risk of being a bit provocative. We live in an in a evangelical culture that wants to make the Christian faith all about you and God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and He wants you to be happy and healthy all the time. Can I say to you that Jesus Christ, first and foremost, died for the Father? Jesus did not pay a ransom to the devil. It was God the Father that he suffered under. It was his justice that he satisfied. It was his people that he died to redeem. And here we see in verse 21 that it was the Father who made him to be sin for us. You and I, as as much as we would like to believe, you and I were not down here just crying out to God, oh, please send us a Savior. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, if I would have been living in the first century... I would have stood up for Jesus. Well, that's exactly what Peter said. No, the truth, brothers and sisters, that apart from his regenerating grace, you and I would have been in that crowd shouting, crucify him, crucify him. But God the Father would not leave us in such a miserable condition. God the Father, because he loved the world, was pleased to make his son the savior of sinners and to send him into the world in the fullness of time so that we can address Him as Father. And if you are lost in your sins, and if you feel the weight of your guilt and your need for a Savior, I want you to also understand that what you need is a Father. You need a spiritual, heavenly Father. One who cares for you and one who meets your needs, not at the expense of His justice or at the expense of His holiness, but because He is just and because He is holy, He sends His Son into the world to die for sinners. This is the initiative of the Father, for He hath made. But secondly, I want you to see in our text the interposition of the Son. The interposition of the Son. Notice the verse goes on and it says, For he hath made him. The him is decidedly distinct from the he. There are two different characters in this verse. The him does not refer to God the Father, but the him is a reference to God the Son. When the Father formulated the plan of redemption, He knew in His perfect wisdom that no one but His own Son was qualified to carry out His will. Can I give you an illustration, if you'll permit me to anthropomorphize a little bit and use some human language here to speak of God. 
It was as if it went this way in this eternal Trinitarian council. Before the foundation of the world, God already, having a perfect foreknowledge, knew that all of humanity was plunged into sin and he viewed us as fallen in Adam. And God the Father, before the foundation of the world, decreed to save his people. And they were not a hypothetical people. No, they were individual, personal, and intimate people that he had created. And what I'm going to describe for you, he did for each and every one of his people. But it was as if God the Father, before the foundation of the world, said, My desire is to save Alan Roney. I want to save him. I want to to redeem him from his sin, and I want to make him my purchased possession. But then the Father remembered, I can't save him because he is a sinner and I am holy. And for me to just embrace him, for me to to just sweep his sins under the rug and ignore them, I would have to violate my justice to save him. Upon hearing the Father's pronouncement of his desire to save a sinner, all the angels that flew around the throne that cried out, Holy, 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 day and night. Who would have done anything for the Father? They knew that they were utterly unable to accomplish redemption. But seated at the right hand of the Father, upon His throne, was the Son of God. And upon hearing of the Father's desire to save Alan Roney, the Son of God stood up from his throne and he said, Father, I will go. I will go. I will take on flesh and I will become fully God and fully man. Take upon myself the form of a man yet without sin and I will live a perfect, sinless, spotless life. And Father, I will then go to the cross to accomplish your will. Because you love me and I love you and the love that we have for one another has now been bestowed upon Alan Roney. And because of that Trinitarian love, I'm going to go to the cross and I will be nailed there upon the tree and I will shed my blood and I will give my life and you will punish me so that you don't have to sacrifice your justice when you save him. Amen. For he hath made him. And brothers and sisters, that transaction took place personally and intimately for each and every one of you. He knew your name. It was your name. It was your life. In the eternal council, God the Father determined to save this people and the Son agreed and took upon himself volitionally. He he said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. I lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. Notice how our text describes our Lord Jesus Christ. It says that he knew no sin. This is a unique qualifier that can only be given to Jesus Christ. He alone is absolutely holy and infinitely pure and completely innocent and entirely sinless. He alone is the only one to ever be born of a woman who never sinned. 
He alone is qualified to be our sinless substitute. He had a proven sinlessness. He was tempted at all points, and yet he never sinned. This one characteristic of our Lord eliminates the possibility of any other Savior. Salvation from sin requires a sinless Savior. You cannot save yourself. Amen. You cannot atone for your own sins, much less the sins of the rest of the world. That's right. Jesus is the only one who qualifies. Amen. This identifier who knew no sin, it's hard for us to grasp the weight of such a statement because unlike Jesus, all we have ever known is sin. Sin has long been our friend and our acquaintance. We were conceived in sin. We sinned before we were even conscious of our sins. But when we became conscious of them, we loved them and we continued in them and we chased hard after them. Romans 6 tells us that the wages of sin is death. And I have a a friend named David Morris who likes to say that he spent many years working very hard for his wages. A wage is something you earn, brother. Uh, It's not a gift. Uh, If you were to see your boss on Friday afternoon at 5.30 and he were to say, I've got a gift for you, that would be a slap in the face. You would say, no, I earned that. I worked for that. Sinner, you worked for it. You worked for your condemnation. You worked for your guilt. You pursued it. You devoted your life to it. But salvation... In Christ, it's not a wage. It's a free gift. It's a free gift. Up until the time of our conversion, sin was all we ever knew. As a a society, we embrace sin, and sadly, even as a church, we're becoming more and more desynthesized to sin. Yet it is not so with Christ. He was never corrupted by sin. The dark stains of sin could not place their blemish on His purity. Consider the many temptations that you face on a regular basis, even this morning. Even this morning, you have committed enough sin to condemn you for eternity. The the sinful thoughts that we so often struggle with, the, the carnal temptations that we face. And then consider, brother and sister, consider how easily we succumb. Does it ever, does it ever just shock you when you can spend a whole morning in prayer and in Bible reading and in communion with the Lord and you are feeling good. All it takes is for that one guy on 79 to cut you off and all that sanctification flies out the window. Amen. Consider your thought life. Can you fathom the idea that Jesus Never thought an impure thought. He was perpetually pure. And he had his mind and his heart continually set upon the things that were pure and lovely. Again, we can read these words, who knew no sin, uh, but we can somewhat understand the concept, but never ascertain the entirety of this monumental truth that Jesus Christ knew no sin. And it is this sinlessness that qualifies him to redeem 
in 2 Corinthians 5 earlier, in verses 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul tells us that one died for all. One died for all. And I know that there are some homeschoolers here, but even you understand the math doesn't add up. One died for all. How can one die for all? Because this one, this one man, was greater than any other man. And this one man lived after the manner that no other man ever lived. And his eternal sinlessness, his active and passive righteousness were greater than the sum of all of fallen humanity. All of those in Adam that he redeemed, he was greater than. He knew no sin. Thirdly, I want you to see the imputations of sin and righteousness. The imputations of sin and righteousness. Earlier in this chapter, Paul introduces the concept of imputation. But we know that imputation simply means to accredit to one's account something that they do not possess on the basis of another who does possess it. If, if Lucas were to impute $25 to my account, he would take that $25 from his account because he has so much money in that account, and he would then take that $25 and he would impute it to my account where there is absolutely nothing. In fact, it's worse. Not only is there, is there nothing, there's a negative balance. I don't have the money. I can't earn the money. I didn't work for the money. I didn't even ask for it. He imputed it to me. The gospel is founded on two imputations. Two imputations. And there are three parties in this imputation. There is, there is the party of God the Father. There is the party of Jesus Christ. And then there's the party of sinners. There are two imputations in this verse, one of sin and one of righteousness, and both of these imputations are absolutely necessary for your salvation. Why are they both necessary for your salvation? Because your lost condition can be summed up with two problems. Problem number one, you are not righteous. Problem number two, you are sinful. And God is righteous and he's not sinful. Therefore, you and God are mutually exclusive. And in order for you to have fellowship with him, in order for you to have a relationship with him, in order for you to be right with him, one of you is going to have to change and it's not going to be God. Amen. Th that's what the modern contemporary gospel has, has done, has it not? Instead of standing firmly and squarely on the, the high, exalted, righteous standard of God, they've simply just brought God down to us. But if you are to be fit for His presence, it will be you. It will be you who must become as righteous as He is. In order to get into heaven, you must be as holy as God Himself. Amen. 
That's your problem. That's your problem. So how does he solve that problem? Through imputation. Through imputation. In a way that preserves his justice, exalts his mercy, and glorifies his grace. Imputation. The first imputation is the imputation of our sin to Christ. The imputation of our sin to Christ. Notice verse 21. He hath made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Now, what this does not mean is that Jesus became a sinner. Even on the cross, he was personally innocent, yet he was forensically guilty. He was actually holy, yet he was declared sinful. On the cross, the Father transferred to Jesus all the sins of all those who would ever believe. This is the only way that salvation could be possible. There are so many religions out there that will tell you if you work hard enough and try hard enough, maybe you can pay for your sin debt. Maybe you can atone for your sins. Brothers and sisters, I want you to see that you will never do it. If you were given a million lifetimes to live, you would never do it. The only way that your sin will be dealt with and paid for and taken care of and gone, wiped away, removed from you as far as the east is from the west as if it is at once and in whole. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is taken off of me, imputed to Christ and nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Can you say that this morning? Can you say that this morning? That I bear my sins no more. The thought that when we stand before him on that day, it will be as if God will say, what sins are you talking about? They're gone. They're taken away. Hebrews 8. Our God says, I will remember them no more. God saved us, not by sweeping our sins under the rug, not by, as Roman Catholicism would teach, by giving us the grace to then do the works, to pay for them. No, he dealt with them by taking them from us and giving them to Christ and then pouring out the fierceness of his wrath on our sins in Christ on the cross. The wages of sin is death, and that wage must be paid and was paid at Calvary. Every sin that has ever been committed will receive its just recompense. Every sin that you have ever committed will be judged. And it was either judged in Christ 2,000 years ago or it will be judged for all eternity. Amen. Jesus was made sin because he had no sins of his own. The Greek literally says here, It says, for him who knew not sin, for us sin he made. That's the beauty of the gospel. That that God is not some harsh taskmaster that, that says, follow these ten steps and then maybe I'll love you. No, he said, I have already made all the provision for your salvation. I have made my son the one with whom I enjoyed perfect and holy communion throughout all of the ages. I have made him to be sin. And it's not hypothetical sins. 
its specific acts of sin and its specific curse of sin. All of our sin. All of your sin. This will help you to think about your own sins even as a Christian. Because you will see that you carry around the hammer and the nails that hung him upon that cross every day. All of your wrongdoing. All of your law breaking. All of your hating. All of your lying. All of your lusting. All of your coveting. All of your stealing. Every time you took God's name in vain. Every time you thought an impure thought. Every time you neglected to obey God. Christ bore the full weight of those sins on that cross. As our sin was imputed to him, he subsequently suffered in our place. He experienced the wrath of God, the desolation of God, the separation from God, and the fury of God. He received the judgment, the condemnation, the oppression, the shame, the reproach, the agony that we deserve. As the hymn, His Robes for Mine says in that wonderful last verse, He as though I, accursed and left alone, I as though He, embraced and welcomed home. Amen. Do you recall the story of Genesis 22? There as God had called Abraham to take his only son Isaac and to sacrifice him on the mountain that God would tell him of. And you remember there, as Abraham took Isaac and he took the wood and he took the fire and they're going up to the top of Mount Moriah and Isaac says to his father, he says, here is the wood and here is the fire, but where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? And Abraham responds, Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. It doesn't just say God will provide a ram, but God will provide himself a ram. And there as Abraham took the knife in his hand and as his son Isaac willingly laid upon that altar. He was not a little boy. He was a man. He was a lad. He was a, between the ages of say 18 and 25. As he's laying there on that altar and as his aged father Abraham takes the knife and lifts it high in the air and right as Abraham is going to be obedient to God to the point of sacrificing his own son, the voice cries out from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And oh, the joy and delight of turning around and seeing the ram caught in the thicket prefiguring our Lord wearing the crown of thorns. He was the substitute. But brothers and sisters, Genesis 22 was not the end of the story. Genesis 22 was the intermission. And 2,000 years later, on that same mountain range, the curtains opened up once again. And this time, this time it was God the Father who had the knife in His hand. And there was no substitute. For Christ was the substitute. And God the Father took that knife and He drove it through the heart of His Son. And He poured out His wrath upon Him. Upon the Lamb of God. Which takes away the sins of the world. And there, a mystery that we can't fully understand. We can just say what the Bible says. The Father turns His face away from the Son. 
and the Lord cries out, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer that's not recorded, but it is the only answer, is because, son, you have been made sin. You have been made sin. And until redemption is accomplished and those sins are paid for and my wrath is propitiated, I can't even look at you. I can't even look at you. The Father turned His face away from the Son. Yet you and I have the audacity to think that we can live in the presence of God embracing our sins. Lost person, you have the audacity to think that you're going to stand before him on that last day and have God say, well, you know, you weren't perfect, but you lived a pretty good life and you tried really hard, so I think I'll let you in. He killed his own son. He will not spare you. He will not spare you. It was on the cross as if God the Father said to the Son, God, damn you. And the Son was accursed and suffered in our place, totally forsaken. But sin's wage was paid. And our Lord went to a borrowed tomb where He would delay for three days and three nights. But early on a Sunday morning, having made a full payment for sin, having totally satisfied the wrath of God, our Lord arose triumphantly from that grave and the resurrection who was God's seal of approval on all the Son did. No longer do I damn you, but I I welcome you back into fellowship because you have secured the righteousness for you and for your people by your death upon Calvary's cross. This is what's going on here in verse 21. Your sin being given to Christ and Christ suffering under the fullness of that curse. And if you are a contracting party in verse 21, then your sins are dealt with. They are paid for. They are removed. But... If I were to close my Bible and close in prayer and we were all to go home, you would still be condemned. Because you've just gotten back to zero. But you don't get into heaven with zero. No, you need the holiness of God Himself. So we've seen the first imputation, the imputation of our sin to Christ. But now we see the second imputation, which is the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. Notice verse 21, how it ends. For he hath made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Why, God? Why did you make Christ to be sin for us? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The righteousness of God in him. God requires holiness and purity to enter into His presence, but it brings me great joy to tell you that what God requires, He supplies. Mm -hmm. And the righteousness that God requires is not a righteousness that you will manufacture in your flesh. 
It is not a righteousness that you can earn. It is not a righteousness that you can produce. But the righteousness that will grant you acceptance with God is given freely in the Lord Jesus Christ. The very same way in which Jesus became sin is the way in which you and I become righteous. Imputation. God looked at Jesus on the cross as if he had lived my life in order for him to now look at me as if I had lived Christ's life. He looked on Jesus and he saw us and he saw our sins and he killed him for it. But now he looks upon us and he sees Jesus. And he sees Christ's righteousness. And he embraces us. And pours out his love upon us. Justification by imputation is the high point of the gospel message. It is really the truth upon which Christianity stands or falls. If we lose this truth, we lose everything. Mm -hmm. We cannot... Earn, contribute, or improve upon what God has done in Christ. No, but we must say with a hymn writer, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. We do not receive this justifying righteousness progressively, but this righteousness comes to us in the immediate and in the whole, in the selfsame moment that we place our faith in Him. The entirety of His treasure... And the vastness of his estate given to us when we trust in him. Given to us in the instant that you look upon Christ dying for you on the cross with the eye of repentant faith, all your sins are straightway imputed to him, all of his righteousness given to you. That is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I ask you, do you have this righteousness? Jesus said in Matthew 5 that the righteousness of his people must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And some of us think, well, that just means we need to try harder than them and do better than them. And some of you are basing your entire religion and your entire Christian experience on being better than other people. And you think, well, let me take a look at the people that I go to church with. Well, I I dress better than so-and-so and I... Uh, I don't watch that movie and that they watch. And, uh, I, you know, I, I, I have uh, better financial dealings than them, so my righteousness exceeds them. If you were to put all of humanity on a scale and you were to have the perfect spotless righteousness of Christ on one side and you were to have the, the depths of depravity on the other, uh, there would not be any of us that would be a few inches away from the depths of those depravity in and of ourselves. Amen. If we're going to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees and that grants us acceptance with God... It must be an alien righteousness given to us by grace through faith. And this is what makes Christianity Christianity. And this is what makes the gospel the gospel. If a news reporter was to go around and interview members of various different religions and he were to ask the Orthodox Jew, where are you going when you die? Well, the Jew would say, I'm going to paradise. I'm going to Abraham's bosom. Really? Well, how can you be so sure? Oh, because I love the Torah, and I've kept the law, and I've, I've ate my dietary restrictions, and I've maintained kosher. 
I've kept the feast days, and I, I try very hard not to even turn on a light switch on Saturday. Mr. Muslim, where are you going when you die? Well, I'm going to heaven. How come? Because I love Allah, and I've obeyed his greatest prophet, Muhammad, and I have, I have tried very diligently to obey, and, and on that last day, when God measures my good works and my bad works, I believe my good works will outweigh my bad works, and God will accept me. But you ask the Christian, Sir, ma'am, where are you going when you die? Oh, I'm going to heaven when I die. Really? How come? What, what have you done? Well, I've lived a life of, of sin, and, and, and I'm guilty, and I have not even for one minute obeyed the entirety of the Word of God, and I have nothing to boast about, uh, nothing to parade before Him whereby he should accept me. I'm, I'm, I'm a really terrible person. I'm the chief of sinners. Imagine the confusion on the reporter's face when they would then say, well, then how can you look me in the eye and say with such confidence that you're going to heaven? There's only one right answer. Because that man on that cross died for me. Amen. And when he died for me, he took away my guilt, and he gave me his righteousness. It was a gift. No man gave it to me. No man can take it away from me. And it will persevere me to the very end. May you be able to sing. Behold the man upon the cross. Your sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed you hear your mocking voice cry, cry out among the scoffers. It was your sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought you life. Know that it is finished. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. For he hath made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness to us. We thank you for your gospel. Oh, how we love our Lord Jesus Christ. He has done what no other man has done. He has died for us. He has shed his blood for us. Oh, Lord, help us to rest and receive him by faith that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Empower us, oh God, empower us to live lives that are pleasing unto you, not on the basis of our own works or righteousness, but simply on what he has done. Encourage our hearts and remind us that we are perfectly accepted in your sight because of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.